Linus, thanks so much for doing this. Um, it's hyper pretentious to call this the second to last me to talk because um, it's very unstructured and really there's no big vision here other than having conversations that are useful and relevant to me um, selfishly. So if you found interest in this, please be selfish and call it whatever you like. Um, uh, what, what I would want to do in this in this conversation, as I mentioned to you, in in inducing you or tricking you to join in, was kind of have a conversation around um, computational architecture in a in a non technical way, right? And I think that's a piece of the conversation, at least from my perspective, that's not happening um, very clearly or very transparently or at all. Um, and I think it would be useful to have that conversation, partly for people that are involved with it, like we are in various ways but maybe also to help the non-technical people that are crashing into the conversation <laughs> get some extra anchoring points um, that maybe they don't have. I don't know. Anyway, so maybe let's just do a quick round of introductions and then, and then you know, I've got a vague sort of agenda, but we'll bounce around and, and see how it goes. You know, uh, uh, Andrew, why don't you say who you are and what you do for the microscopic fraction of people in computational design that don't know who you are? <laughs> sure, I'll do that. Uh, so uh, my name is Andrew Human. I am currently a software developer at Hypar, uh, which is a fairly new startup. I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about it a little bit today, working on design tools or, or computational tools for the AEC industry. Um, my background is in architecture. I studied architecture in college and worked as a designer for my first few jobs. And then kind of, you know, starting with uh, sort of scripting and low-level computational work moved gradually but steadily over into actually like doing software development full-time. Hmm. Jonas, what, what about you? Yeah, I'm... Um... I'm an architect uh, in practice and in uh, research. Um, the past 10 years, I've been at White Architect there, which is a, a fairly big Scandinavian firm based in, in Stockholm. Uh, and uh, I was invited there to, to set up, uh, I, I think the first idea, a, a lab in regards to the digital or a lab in regards to BIM actually um but what i've been doing is to which i believe andrew has been doing before as well is to within a practice try to slowly change how people work think uh in regards to architecture and uh and computation and i do i teach uh, in gothenburg sweden uh, and uh, conduct research project based at chalmers on similar notions, but uh, the the let's say the infusion in practice has always been uh, very important to me, uh, really. Good stuff. I mean, so um, I'm John Manicherry. I'm an architect. I've been basically up until a couple of years ago working as a sort of specialist um, sustainability oriented architect and urban designer working basically a sub-consultant to mostly large projects. Um, and so I worked on two of the biggest projects in Swedish history um, with big in the, in a small team. 
the city move in Kirana and uh, you know the planned move of a very large office building. Um, and what I've been trying to do in those projects, other than just basically beg anybody, the developer, the the you know the, the principal architects, to do actual sustainable design, which almost never works. Um, what I really wanted to happen was that um, the the architecture became integrated with, was used for the acceleration of sustainable lifestyles. Because prior to becoming an architect, I, I have worked on and still work on environmental sustainability in policy and science. And um, the special interest I have there technically and in policy terms is in sustainable consumption. Basically, how do you reframe um, economic processes, particularly on the consumer side of the economy, so that people just destroy the planet less systematically, right? And a lot of the things that we want to happen there are actually part of the built environment, driving, waste management. What's increasingly happening is, is that we are, you know, integrating service-oriented consumption into our lives, and that itself can either be accelerated or retarded by built design. And so the company I started, Base2, has as its mission service integration and we do that both with a platform to enable services to be better integrated to live properties and a design tool, the method called Space Engine. Um, we've known each other before this, obviously, uh, Jonas, but but uh, over the last year, we've built a collaboration whereby White becomes a kind of, uh, a sort of structural collaborator in the technical development and market development of of space engine so that's the that's the quick background i mean what what i think is going on right now is um uh um a huge obviously expansion and explosion explosion of different kind of um computational design stuff but um i i guess what i feel is missing from the conversation is something a little bit more um uh clear in terms of the broader implications uh, and so um, let's just kind of summarize so we're all roughly on the same page I'm pretty sure that we are uh, share some kind of you know overview theming of what is as far as we're concerned interesting in in computational design terms I mean I'll just kind of kick off my little my little bit here I think that what isn't interesting for me is kind of micro parsing how Autodesk is or is not opening up and what specific tools do or do not interact with Revit. Like that's what's dominating the landscape technically and is incredibly interesting as far as I'm concerned. I think what's more interesting and ultimately maybe more relevant is for example, what's really happening with gaming engines, right? How, for example, um, Unity game engine and to a lesser extent, Unreal Engine, which are the two big ones are becoming relevant to computational design, right? They already have a bunch of computational design things in there. Um, but more broadly, they are powerful tools for computationally generating forms, even if they do it a bit differently from architecture. And I think what that's leading to is a, a significant increase in curiosity among people that want to, in a very broad sense, design spaces and objects at the architectural scale. And I think that's a, a trend that's significant. I think what's also significant is, I guess, something that sort of sits on top of technical interoperability, like the the, the boring stuff. It's not. I mean, it's, I mean, there's the boring to the real the real world of which 
software connects to what software. Sitting on top of that is a conversation around collaboration, basically, which is incredibly normal to every, every other software sector, but somehow hasn't really arrived in architecture yet. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of interest in, in visualization. And in my view, that is badly misguided. Right, the idea that you go into a VR headset and start viewing an apartment, which is the sort of classic use case, I think is very far from how those kinds of technologies will be used. Uh, not not far from it. I think it's not necessarily the main event. I think w what I perceive is that, for example, visualization will be used for facilities management, right, to work out how you can use a space or optimize a space or or how you need to manage a space. And that's a bit different. It's more sort of like business to business visualization than consumer oriented visualization i think overall right under i mean so there's just a few because there's a bunch of others but th those ones matter to me and i think that they're under underappreciated what's really going on there i think that um under all that or around all that i don't really have to describe it is a massively evolving set of skills right there's software developers coming into spatial computation there's graphic design assigned to do parametric design that leads to architecture. There's brand people, there's urban people, you know, it's just, just kind of getting very, very fluid in terms of the core skill sets. And I think that's a epiphenomenon or a phenomenon in its own right that's getting very interesting. But that's a summary, little kind of summary for me. But what, what, what do you guys see as being other than like the technical hard edge of what geometric kernel you use or whatever, what do you guys see as being themes or stuff that's going on that's interesting in this space? I mean, I think from my perspective, you know, the, the industry has actually changed quite a lot over the last, you know, eight, 10 years since I've been working professionally with respect to a kind of just, first of all, an awareness and an appreciation of computational design as even a thing to do. You know, when I started, it was sort of the, the domain of, you know, a few, you know, really specialized firms. It was, you know, Norman Foster was, you know, they had, you know, they had their stuff that, you know, there's there all those sort of high end firms maybe had a, a crack team of, you know, geometry geeks, but now it seems that there's been a sort of general uptick of, you know, just firms all over sort of seeing this as a necessity. And there's at least a few people on staff throughout who are working with, working not by traditionally modeling, but by writing code that somehow describes a process. And, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of that is really in, in a sort of unsexy territory of things like interoperability, getting stuff from one piece of software to another. Mm. A lot of it is around a lot of unsexy BIM automation, like, you know, just making sure that, you know, we turn this model into this drawing in the right way and don't, you know, repeat the same processes over and over again. Um, and, you know, I think the the progression has been one of, this becoming like more and more serious, more and more professional and more and more widespread. And the sort of specialists in any firm context, you know, were kind of a, a niche corner group for a while and slowly have been taken more and more seriously by their firms. They've been given more resources, they've been given more power, and they've been given a mandate to actually have an impact, I think, in general. Um, it, you know, it's not just enough to have your, you know, your crack geometry geek over in the corner, you know, solving problems for one project. There's an interest in, 
creating repeatable tools, tools that are usable by a wider cohort within a firm rather than just, you know, like, because, you know, when I started, no matter, despite my, my best intentions, it was always that, you know, I would write the script and then I would have to run the script. And I think that's mm. still fairly typical. The sort of this specialist code oftentimes just becomes the domain of the one singular owner. Um, and so, you know, all of this stuff, whether it's complex geometry or even the automation stuff, you know, oh, go talk to the tech guy. He'll go run his script. He'll automate it. You know, he'll, he'll do the thing. And then the rest of us will go about our normal work. And now I think we're seeing a shift towards an interest in making these things usable by others within the practice and generally shareable and maintainable over a longer period of time. Yeah, so, I mean, could I jump on, on that train? Yeah, sure, bit? please do, yeah. I mean, um, I, I agree uh, with all of that, I think. Um, I've also been in one place in 10 years trying to push these issues. Um, and the way to talk about it has shifted within a practice quite a bit. Uh, from sort of a top level interest and thinking that this is something we should have. But then in fact, everything happens really out there in the projects in the typical architectural practice, uh, regardless of top level leadership, um, which has been a very slow process uh, taking these steps. Uh, but the territory has shifted also from the, from the outside, I think, and uh, the firm where I'm at, uh, realized that the world is changing rapidly, big new actors are coming into play, and suddenly it's not just a matter of uh, making things useful in, in the daily day-to-day -day business, but actually trying to find new opportunities, maybe new alliances, uh, etc. So that's changing as well. Uh, and I think, uh, well, the, the number of times that I get an email asking me, for a clear definition of computational design is, is kind of increasing because someone <laughs> wants to talk about it outside the firm and they are not familiar at all. And the number of versions I've written of popularized, popularized versions of, of uh, how to define what we are actually doing uh, is increasing uh, all the time. Um, so I think it's been shifting also from a number of few people seeing potentials and being interested because they find something potentially well useful, intriguing, and they want to code. Basically, is shifting over to uh, trying to address actual problems and, and realizing that there's uh, value to be generated. Uh, and this is all, of course, also related to how we think about architecture in a sense. Um, it's not all there, uh, but there's definitely a shifting territory. Um, so, what, so what occurs to me when listening to both of you is, do, do, me, because what you're both describing in a way is um, organic evolution, right? Maybe in a slightly different time frame or processes that than one might have expected, but it's organic evolution from inside, from inside practices and inside the profession, as it were. Is that? Is that viable? What I mean by that is, that is, is there going to be no shock to the system at some point through software breaking through from outside the Autodesk, McNeil, sort of, you know, the, the classic software um, domain? And is there going to be no disruption from 
people that just aren't conventionally architects, will they not be able to break into into the mainstream? Is the issue that there's just too much technical detail that only architects can cover, or in which case this organic evolution, getting its you know getting its house in order bit by bit, is okay? Or is disruption coming from out from sort of exogenously? What what would you think about that? I mean, my gut is that it's a it's it's inevitably going to be a little bit of both. I think yeah. that there was a moment where it seemed like it was going to be the outside disruptor that was just going to transform everything. I'm thinking, of course, of Flux, and they yeah. were you know they really set out to, you know, with all of the backing of Google and all of this other stuff to, you know, totally rethink how architecture was practiced. And they had, they had a lot of really significant insights, but I also think that, you know, there was a great deal of hubris, you know, not, not everyone in the organization, but certainly some of the visionaries leading it, I think underestimated the complexity of the practice itself. And I think mm. that I see this in a lot of cases with these sort of external factors is that there's a tendency to look at architecture, kind of tilt your head and squint at it and say, oh, that seems easy. Like we can, we can write algorithms to do that better than you can. Um, when the reality is that there's, you know, there is still a fair amount of disciplinary knowledge and deep complexity involved in solving those problems when you're, when you're actually interested in building a real building um, that make it very hard to break into from the outside. With that said, I think that, you know, I think it was, um, there was a Twitter thread earlier um, and, uh, oh shoot, now I'm blanking on his name. Uh, in any case, the it'll come to me, but he, he made the point and I, you know, I think it's a common assertion, but it, he, he put it very concisely, which was that, you know, either architects are going to figure out how to do this tech stuff or the tech guys are going to figure out how to do this architecture stuff. And it's one or the other. Um, or, or in this case, you know, probably a little bit of both. And so I think we're going to continue to see architecture firms beef up their ability to capture their processes and their specialized disciplinary knowledge in a way that they can deploy it in a, in a manner more akin to the way tech works. Um, but I also think we will see challengers from the outside, which may or may not be strictly tech. I think more than anything, they're going to be a sort of tech plus novel business model um, that will, you know, I think present a challenge to traditional practice. I mean, I think, you know, we work where I was before my current job was one example of this. What, what do you feel, Jonas, from inside the, 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 the mothership? You are, you are the, the head, of, head of, of, the, of the digital design group inside the largest architecture office in the Nordics. So you're a bit like the design death star of the Nordics. What does it feel like inside? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... That was a compliment, by the way. Uh, thank you. In a, in, a, in a roundabout way. <laughs> I, was, I just realized uh, I, I aligned you with the, to... em, with, the, with the empire, but, but, but assume you're... Uh, what, I'll shut up. What, what do you uh, think? Uh, there's a soundtrack starting to play in my head now. <laughs> um, I, I, first of all, I think, uh, Andrew, you referred to Oliver Green, perhaps, because I caught that tweet you did a couple of days ago. With floor plans, maybe it was not that one that I was okay. thinking of. Um, but but yeah, I mean, uh, similar a lot of question a lot of activity around this conversation lately. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in in Scandinavia, we there, there's a big uh, player coming in with the ambition to disrupt everything uh, from Norway, uh, and I think that uh, that that adds a level of seriousness maybe maybe even fear 
in in practices like my own, which is a very big and you know for a very long time successful practice. Uh, it's not the way I prefer to to get development going in, in trying to sort of scare my colleagues, but something new is happening when when this is occurring somehow. Uh, I'm trying to backtrack a little bit to where you started with disruption, right, or, uh, or, or massive changes. I think on one hand, things have been loosening up because, to be frank, when I started in this firm, Autodesk was the, the only thing that was leading everything, basically. And that, that's much more open now, I think. Uh, and I think that's a good thing, not to discredit all the work uh, done there, but so in, in a way also understanding that there are communities out there, uh, networks informal between hundreds of practices around the world where ideas have been kind of uh, handed over and shared uh, and all of this and now starts to really make a difference. Um, somehow in, in the, the reason why I've stayed and where, I'm, where I am, is really an understanding that there's something special in architectural practices. Maybe partly what you said, Andrew, about the complexity of, of, of making buildings, uh, but also the reason for making buildings, let's say, uh, yeah. which, which is kind of different. Uh, uh, of course, an architectural practice uh, is not making that investment, is not making all the, the, the money, let's say, we, we are working with our clients, but I think that that model where we there's kind of at the heart a little bit more of a collaboration rather than sort of a just I provide the service to you and you pay me, uh, which is happening uh, in these processes. And I think that that's in a way what I'm fighting for is to ensure the survival of, of somehow that attitude, which means that everything must change also um, the way we do business the way we design, of course, is uh, rapidly changing, and I think it's it's kind of good that there is there are new actors, uh, and maybe they are sometimes um, over overly confident in what can be accomplished, and maybe they are maybe sometimes believing that technology is the pure and and single answer uh, to certain things, uh, but I think that's changing as well. Uh, so I, I see a gradual shift in attitude and uh, from, from being in a situation when I try to argue for, well, if not for my existence, at least to, to push and test certain new things, there's a, a pool instead. Uh, and we could do lots of things if we had more time, basically. Yeah. So, so, so you, you said something interesting, Andrew, which I think for me is... Is sort of the the sleeper. Um, uh, well, it's not even really a sleeper now. It's it's evolving reasonably quickly. I mean, I think the idea that that um, that the that the current architecture profession will be kind of taken down by smart tech nerds who have worked out how to kind of code space in some way. I don't think that's realistic in the, in the near future, or even in in the sort of early midterm, on the basis that, as you say, there's just too much complexity, and that's one of the 
um, one of the reasons why Flux, I think, ran into the sand. I actually want to come back to that and, and gossip about it for a bit because I think that's actually quite interesting. But I think that what you said when you finished speaking on the point, which is that what may happen is that some technology with a new business model will arrive. I think that's more credible. And what I what I think will happen there is that it won't the 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 tech version of architectural design that's effective and will most damage or influence architecture as a profession won't be an attempt to, as it were, take over the current um, the current practice model. The current practice model is premised on the idea that every building is a is a one off, all right. In principle, I mean that's in a way almost the that's the that's the that's the explicit or implicit ambition of people who go into architectural designs. They want to basically design new things all the time. And they don't want to go into a, a model of mass production, but I think that's natural. In actual fact, is that not, you know the industrial objects tend to be, and in many ways should be, mass produced in terms because of quality and price and safety and speed and all sorts of reasons why we want these things to be that way. What we've learned, I think, from manufacturing, for example, smartphones, is that people don't worry about material differentiation if the packaging of the experience around it is highly diverse and high quality. And I think that there's a world in which I think I don't know how much of design, architectural design will be like this, but I, I feel quite a lot of it will be a world where property developers have basically codified a specific kind of design for the products that they build, which is very, very limited in terms of its, as it were, sort of abstract extensibility. You can't use it, you know, if there was a, it's a residential um, typology, you can't extend that to be a school. Right, it's just it's just optimized for residences and even subdefined in terms of you know location and cultural you know relevance and wh which markets it'll work for, but it becomes a situation where the computation used to design those things is very constrained but hyper efficient. Right, it generates drawings that you know attach to software that construction company uses that the you know supply um, material supply company uses in in ways that. Right now, there's there's just not enough momentum or or um, there's not enough force making Autodesk integrate with suppliers and constructors in that way. So this idea of verticalization, not just in terms of manufacturing, but also in terms of somehow design tools optimized for outputs, I think is it feels to me inevitable, right? And the, and the design interface is is almost gamified because the constraints are so explicit you can't do that much with it but you can do enough you know games like townscaper which are highly 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 constrained but people somehow are delighted by them in terms of their creative possibilities it really blew my mind how much joy and sense of creative fulfillment people get out of something that has almost no options right <laughs> i think that that stylistically constrained um production optimized universe is definitely not an attack on the current you know infinite design capabilities of, a, of, a, of an advanced architecture studio, but I actually think might start taking out massive chunks of the, of the workflow, of the work opportunity. Um, and so that's a sort of hybrid attack on the Citadel. It's not trying to take over the skills. It's basically saying most of those skills are not relevant to most of what makes money in the market. Um, and that's what, I, I wouldn't say that worries me because, um, I, I won't lose from that, but it, I'm interested to see how the profession would respond to those kinds of uh, innovations, which don't attempt even to directly take over their core skill set. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a really interesting question, and you know, I, I think that 
you know, there for a while it was, you know, the big high design firms who were really the leaders in all of this computational thinking because they were using it to realize the perfect one-off, something that nobody else could even achieve because they didn't have the techniques and the technology and the algorithms and the scripts and all yeah. this stuff. Yeah. But yeah. I actually think that the, the sort of disruptive impact of these technologies will come from the really bread and butter work, the really repetitious stuff, you know, yeah. Yeah. a gazillion Starbuckses, you know, around the world mm -hmm. rather than, mm -hmm. you know, rather than a museum. Like, you know, I don't I don't care if anyone builds a, you know, a museum generator. It's not going to be the source of the world's museum. <laughs> if we're thinking about yeah big box stores and warehouses and other, you know, even retail or, you know, housing, which, you know, for any given market doesn't vary that much. I think there's a huge opportunity to rely on repetition for efficiency and also to create a kind of culture of collective improvement around that stuff. I think to me, that's the most exciting potential of kind of focusing on actually optimizing this typology and rather than doing that within within the walls of a particular firm's capabilities to actually like open up the discussion probably through technology to you know how do we how do we actually concretely improve the housing stock of you know an entire market or or, or you know an entire country yeah um Jonas are you familiar with the history of of flux uh, sort of. We were uh, just uh, uh, changing a lot of our workflows to use Flux uh, when the plug was pulled. Uh, mm. So, so a bit, yeah. Because, because I just want to have a quick gossip about it, mm. um, and maybe partly for just the pure, you know, prurience of gossiping, but also because I want to know what you think, and I think it is a useful test case of what's evolving in this space. Whenever I explain to people who aren't involved, and even many people that are involved in architectural design or computational design, I say, you know, you do realize that the best funded startup in computational design history flamed out entirely um, despite having Google behind it. And they're like, oh no, I never heard of that. And I'm like, well, that's an interesting story in itself. I mean, the, the, just for anyone who's um, who, who, who doesn't know, who happens to listen to this, Flux was a was basically an idea that came from um, uh, a few architects. Um, it was already an, an idea underway back in 2012 when I met Michelle Kaufman, who was one of the original founders of it at TED. And the a big idea, um, legitimately, was to was to it was broadly in the area of modularized design outputs, which is something that Michelle was specialized in at that time with a kind of computational engine to, to, to develop the, the, the designs um, with a focus on creating sustainable housing at scale quickly, right? And I, and I believe in, in, in the vision that they had. Um, and I was very attracted to it because of that. I mean, I want there to be exactly as you were implying, Andrew, um, good quality, affordable housing for lots of people quickly. And that in principle would be, or in theory would be one, one way to get there. What ended up happening, and this is how I got to know the company quite closely, is that they released a beta um, of what they'd basically been banging on about since at least 2012, and they'd raised some money for by 2014, 2015, I can't remember exactly when it came out. When I saw it, I was a little bit horrified because it didn't do anything that they said they wanted to work on. It was basically a kind of 
set of modules to optimize some aspects of the design process. One module dedicated to kind of co connecting up bits of software via a web platform. Um, one module to basically kind of visualize um, planning code and look at, you know, permissible planning envelopes versus an intended program. There was a database of sustainable materials and there was a product that they had announced to investors, but not presented to the public, which was basically a design engine. They were extensively testing with architecture offices behind the scenes, but that was never actually launched to the public or even to designers. Actually, it wasn't launched in any way at all. It was just shown to, to background partners. And then they tried various different things to kind of pull all the pieces together, um, but it didn't really stick. And my sense of what happened there is that uh, they didn't understand that they weren't selling into architecture, right? That was one of the main things. I think that it's an interesting, this is one of the things I think is useful to pull out from um, the Flux story is that, you know, when I spoke, to, when, I, when, the, when the beta test came out, I wrote 12 pages of complaint to the CEO <laughs> saying, this is not good. This is not what you should be doing. I'm so annoyed. You, you, it was bait and switch. And then he said, do you want to consult for us? And then he was fired. So that never happened. Um, but um, but I, I got very much inside it and met him, the CEO at that time, a bunch of times and met some of the team. And 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 I, what, what I felt one of the problems was is that, that he and their, and their business outlook was thinking that architecture was going to um, buy lots of these licenses. And I was like, there's not enough people to buy these tools, right? No, there's not enough people to make a growth company that could pay $10 a month for this stuff. And I didn't think that they succeeded, as you pointed out originally, Andrew, in, um, in reinventing sufficiently competently a computational design tool. They just couldn't make it work. There was too many, too many exceptions to any rule. Mm. Um, and those two things, what are you selling to whom? And can you actually put computers onto very poorly defined problems I think those are those are interesting lessons to extract from it. Did you feel, uh, Jonas, in the end? I mean, what, what did you? What were you? What would have you been? What would have you been prepared to pay for in flux as, as it evolved, and how much? That's a tricky question. I mean, as you say, uh, we were using those parts of of what they were developing. That was literally just a small piece in the puzzle for our workflows. Yeah, uh, and we did that knowing also that there were alternatives. So uh, I also have a hard time to see how that could have continued in a way. Uh, but it it, it uh, suited us at that time, and now we're doing it differently, basically. Uh, but I'm comparing a little bit to how we see. Uh, regular software providers like Autodesk and so on, uh, moving on with uh, changes in licensing and so on that mm -hmm. actually makes a firm like ours start to reconsider uh, if maybe we have options, uh, you know? So the, the typical uh, way of, of selling software uh, is maybe, there has to be different uh, versions, but I'm also comparing a little bit to how Norwegian Spacemaker is now moving forward um, 
and uh, they've, they, we, we've met them and, and they want to work with us or rather they want us to use their products. Uh, we ask, so what's the price? They just tell us you can't afford it uh, because basically they want to approach the developer and say to the developer, um, you need this for your project. It will make things efficient. Uh, and uh, there are a few architects licensed to use this, so then you can hire them for some time. Uh, and that's a completely different scenario, of course, which in a way bypasses us. And, and architectural firms are kind of small consultancies, uh, and there's not a lot of money to be made from, from us, basically. So I understand that perspective. So we just to clarify, because that's very interesting. Different. So you're saying SpaceMaker is selling their tool to developers and roping you into it and yeah. getting you a free sale or something. Well, they they um, they literally um, offer uh, the use of their tool for one project at a fixed price. Uh, and then uh, whoever happens to be involved in that project would then work with our toolkit and they for us they offer us uh, free training and certification so that we become users of their product and you know yeah they're building a market for themselves of course and uh, yeah so 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 this is actually I mean, so this is very interesting I, we, we've had a couple of chats about this marginally before Andrew I mean I've spoken to Ian and um, What's the other guy called? The other, the other, the other guy, the other Revit guy. I've got his name. Uh, Anthony. Anthony, that's right. And I, I so I've had chats w with your two guys about the business model, and I've been very careful about it because I don't want to tread on any toes. But I do think that this is one of the biggest. I mean, it's at the boundary of the business and kind of cultural dimension of computational design, which is what is you, what are you selling to whom? Because at the you know, so when I spoke to Flux about the business model, I asked. The CEO, I said, well, actually, the business manager, I said, how are you going to you know, make money out of this? I said, well, you know, we'd love to have a $10 subscription on the desk of every architect. And I said, I said to myself, I never told them, I said, well, there's 235,000 registered architects. Let's say there's 100,000, 150,000 practicing architects. Even if you got them all to buy this, you would not have a venture scale company that is worth, you know, $45 million in its first venture round, which is what the money they, they gained, they gathered. And I'm like, that's very, very scary because in practice, as you just revealed, uh, Jonas, you're the largest practice in, in Sweden. And if at the very, very best case, one in 20 of your people had a license yeah. <laughs> to flux. <laughs> I mean, but yeah. so then if you take you know, the space maker example, that's sort of moving down the direction of analysis that we've chosen to go down. The way we take space engine as simplistic as it is is to say to developers you need a design optimization tool which we want to control for you and and our relationship so the base to relationship with 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 you Jonas is partly on that basis right is that we aren't selling you um a license to to space engine we're going and getting work together and using the tool and, and the money we get from it is actually not even through the design process it's through the revenue we generate through service integration over time and that's the bigger picture mm. and i actually even think that you know space maker will run into that problem which is there's so many ways to optimize space but unless you have a revenue driver on top of that um 
it's just going to get commodified. I'm not sure what they think they're going to be selling to developers that is, isn't just commodifiable, um, you know, optimization uh, tooling. Um, and so, and so, I don't want to see the elephant in the room at this point of the conversation, but we have to talk about a, a company that just raised funding and does um, all sorts of things related to, you know, web-based files and collaboration, interoperability, optimization. Not dissimilar from Flux. It's a, it's a company you may have heard of called Hypar. <laughs> Andrew, how are you going to be, how are you going to beat the beat the market on this stuff? What what is how are you going to culturally evolve a stable sales proposition? Uh, so, I mean, I'm probably the worst representative from the company to answer that question. I, <laughs> that was a total hide as a kind of hijack question. So, if you want to bounce it, that's fine. I was just curious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you should have Anthony on, and he can give you uh, he can give yeah. you better answer than than I will. I mean, you know, I I tend to think that, you know, they're you know, we are we are interested in addressing a lot of markets. We're also still sort of figuring out who this product is ultimately for. I think as as someone with a design background, I'm very interested in seeing it evolve into a design tool because I think it legitimately opens doors for the the kinds of, you know, sort of general and collective cultural improvement of our design practice in a way where all of this knowledge is locked up currently in every individual firm's, you know, R&D group and their, you know, their, their drive with all their grasshopper scripts and stuff like that in a way that I think is unsustainable. So I would love to see it be a design tool. With that said, that's not the first market that we are chasing. I think we see a lot of opportunity in uh, little moments of automation within construction applications. Um, so we've done a lot of thinking about that. We're also doing a lot of thinking about how we work with building product manufacturers who inevitably already have to invest a huge amount of energy and time and money in producing content that architects can use, but that content is inevitably dumb content. It doesn't actually include any of the logic of how their building systems actually work. It's just stuff you place in a model. And so, you know, one of the things that Hypar offers to say a building product manufacturer is, oh, you can encode not only what the stuff is, your whole product catalog, but also how it all works together and make it very easy for an architect user of the platform to say, deploy that system on their building. And then, you know, and then they'll give you a call and they'll buy your product. So there is, I think we're, we're aiming for a kind of ecosystem of different practices, different clients, different use cases that can theoretically all benefit from each other's presence on the platform. Now, I think that's not, it's, it's, it's much easier said than done. I think we have a lot of work ahead of us to figure out what the right sort of timing prioritization and sort of incentives we can offer to get people to put that knowledge on the platform. Um, because, you know, if right now a real estate developer shows up on Hypar, you know, the, their ability to generate a building that, you know, pencils and that is useful for them as a study is dependent on there being architects on the platform who have released in some way some of their knowledge. So I think we inevitably get mixed up in, in sort of the same way you're describing, um, you know, with, sorry, what was the other company called? Uh, space maker space maker yeah space maker. yeah in the same way where there you you sort of find yourself in this uncomfortable position of potentially a, a mediator or a player in a contract between uh you know 
an architect and a developer or an engineer and an architect or, you know, a building product manufacturer and a designer or whatever. And, you know, I will not claim that we have solved all of that yet. Um, but I think, you know, we're, we're hopeful that the sort of carrot of, of automation of, you know, kind of automation that just serves me, that allows my practice to do things better and smarter, allows me to work with my own internal collaborators will be enough of an on-ramp that we can start to build up an ecosystem in these different domains where eventually they'll even be able to start to talk to each other using, you know, collaborate, collaborating via Hypebar as a, as a platform. But who knows, who knows how it'll all shake out. I mean, from my perspective, uh, this is actually a piece of the. I want to come back to the kind of the pricing issue in a second and get some and get some thoughts from you on on both from both of you on that. But just to say, um, from my perspective, the the cultural dimension of this is is an interesting one. I think that what you have done uh, at Hypar, and I actually think it is to do with the personalities, at least so far as I've experienced it, of yourself and Anthony and Ian. I'm sure there's others, but those are the you know those are the ones of you that I've interacted with is that you are so fucking smart and so good at engaging in conversation, but it creates a huge incentive for people just to engage with you, right? Uh, and that is, I think that's an achievement in itself, right? That you build a culture around you. I mean, your your um, Discord server is fascinating, very lively, all sorts of of completely unrelated conversations happily <laughs> happening happening there, but in a way that adds a kind of halo effect, you know, I've ended up chatting about cognition with people in one of the channels and then having, you know, I mean, he is a computational designer and, and, and researcher. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a relevance we come back to, but it becomes a kind of um, extended network of practice and thought, but I think is hugely compelling, right? I think that's already an achievement. I don't think that happened with flux for whatever reason. And I don't think it's happening with things that, aggressively claim to building community. So, um, I mean, kudos for you for that, because I think that just by natively you've done it well. And I think that will count a lot in the end. It's something that that is really important to us. And, you know, we just, every so often we review our kind of mission, vision and values, of course. And one of the values that we've had from the beginning that I think, you know, matters a lot to me personally is this idea, we call it respect expertise. It's the idea that like, we succeed if we can if we can support experts of many kinds and we shouldn't ever set out believing that we can just solve the problem for you or we can just write the algorithm that does what you, you know what your whole job is and so in order to do that it also means being really active listeners and, and participating in these conversations and having a community where we can really hear, you know, what are the problems you're facing? What would be worth paying $10 a month for? Like, what are the, what are the problems of today? What are the problems of tomorrow? What are the things that are hard for you to do? What are the things that are fun for you to do? And you don't want any software system to take away from your day-to-day -day work. How can we make those things more fun or, or more productive or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. But I think that fundamental tenet that like, regardless of who we're interacting with, whether it's, you know, designers, engineers, developers, whoever, we have to come from a place that respects that the thing that they do is complex and hard. And we're going to succeed if we can enable those people to, to share their expertise on Hypebar rather than reverse engineer their expertise on our own. Yeah, I think, I think in, in relation to, so the, the things that it reminds, starting to remind me of in terms of technical cultures that self-propel 
are the culture around Blender a little bit and the culture around um, Unity in the sense that there's just in a vast amount of tinkering. Mm. Right? There's so many people engaging with the tool without really knowing what they're doing. They don't know anything. They're just fiddling around. But because the community, because the tool promulgators and the community immediately around it are so welcoming of tinkering, it creates this kind of sort of uh, centripetal force of curiosity and engagement and reward and experimentation. I think that actually may end up being the the dynamic, whether on a high path or on other platforms, that actually is the answer to all this, is that there's just so much experimentation using a certain kind of tool that breakthroughs and innovations just start accumulating around that. Um, back on the pricing issue, Jonas, I mean, do you, do you ever have a sense, do, do people inside the office ever ask you to help them work out a different way of pricing and monetizing architecture? Or is that not a question they're asking you? That is the question right now, uh, I should, I have to say, I mean, which is what we're looking at a lot also. I mean, of course, the baseline and the normal procedures, which, which is still sort of how an architectural practice is running is by consultancy by the hour. Uh, that's there. Um, but uh, we have many different initiatives right now, which tries to look at alternate models. And no one has uh, the answer to what that is, basically. Um, but for instance, my team, who has been uh, for the past 10 years focusing on interacting with commissions that we have in general um, at many different scales, from very design oriented to workflow oriented and, and so on. Uh, now um, address the market directly. So we're, 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 we have to build our own way of, of actually making making business using our skills, etc. And we're not software developers. We're nothing like you guys at Hyper. We, we're very, very used to going into unique situations and resolving that uh, and adding value through that with a range of different toolkits, et cetera. So that, it's a challenge, um, but that, that is definitely happening. Um, and th the first new offers are already out there uh, in different ways. Do, so on that point, just to kind of clarify slightly, is the, is the office, well, maybe it just isn't the way it works, but, but do you have a feeling that they are looking to you as the leader in the technological sort of pathway of the, of the company to 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 think through that shift in monetization strategies more than anybody else or is it but what, what I'm basically trying to say but what I'm basically asking is does does white think the technology is the route through which new revenue models will evolve or it isn't the primary route it's one of the main routes um, yeah recognized and, and in fact uh, internally we are we are re reorganized uh, to face that mm. uh, to a certain extent. I'm curious, Jonas, if that means like actually like selling any of your sort of technical capabilities as themselves a service or actually selling software or still in kind of the domain of like using technical capabilities to support projects or maybe new kinds of project delivery. Like what, what shape does that take? 
Yeah, we're in the middle of that mix, uh, I should say. But uh, I mean, we are not software developers. We don't have that capability. Uh, we are developers of code, uh, etc. Focused on Dynamo and Grasshopper and all the platforms we have. So I think what we will have to do is to um, uh, use our skills in a smart way to set up unique services. Uh, that's where the technology comes from all over the place, but we align it to the situation uh, basically uh, and make it useful. Um, that's the that's the point right now. This may change, of course. Right. Uh, just to clarify, so so I understand, are you is what you're saying that the the emphasis inside white is trying to find more ways to deploy white's skills, right? So rather than just designing buildings, you can you can consult on a variety of other things, or is there actually innovation in terms of how you make money? Because there's one way of there's there's a way there's more way there's more ways of doing the same thing if you see what I mean yeah and there's other doing other things. There is a there's a very um, the, right now there's a, a, a an innovation program initiated uh, the first two pilots have gone through yeah. uh, and two more are coming up and they are aimed at looking at alternate business models but the, I would I would say also that the strength with wine is that it's a very interdisciplinary firm. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of know-how and competences in many different areas, uh, not necessarily closely related to technology. And that's the benefit uh, and, and what, what th this can be built on. Reuse uh, and things like that. Um, there's uh, a large number of sustainability experts, etc. So a lot of people is involved in trying to find alternate ways of, of, of creating opportunities, basically, which is very suspect, interesting. Um, yeah. I, I suspect that would be actually, in the end, a, a, um, a big aspect of the, I want to say, well, I mean, it's not just defensive, but like the kind of the, a, a newly proactive value creation on behalf of the architecture profession is that it's not just that it's technically solving boring issues that software is not, close to me able to solve about layout and, and, and form and, and space. It's just that the people who go into architecture are weirdos that are interested in lots of things. And if they're good, they can put those things together. And that is very antithetical to computation right now. I mean, basically, the fact of the matter is the people that go into coding basically are quite narrow, narrow, narrowly focused technicians, however good they may be. At least professionally, and and so that I think is going to be an interesting aspect of of the evolution of the profession, which is it's not just technically solving spatial problems; it's having a very very wide perspective on the relevance of of spatial design to society, and that that I think is a secret weapon, if you like. Mm -hmm. On the um, on the pricing issue, um, I, I, I I have a strong sense that the the issue of re recurring revenue is is a is a is or should be a priority and that's where i think the profession is 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 missing a very obvious thing which is that if design is good the building should continue to be viable and improve over time and if that is what you're selling then you should attach your revenue to that you see what i mean yeah. you know a kind of performance-based aspect of the design fee um 
and that may end up rebalancing where the income comes from in terms of upfront design costs versus you know um, what they would call in the movie industry back end. Um, but I do think there's something in that. Um, certainly in what we're doing, which is optimizing buildings for services more and more comprehensively and then monetizing the services that are then integrated with the live property. That's, um, that's a calculus that I, I've made that I think is pretty definitive to the extent that you can almost undercut entirely your design fees because they end up being such a small part of the overall value, which then becomes extremely interesting for developers because you're giving them masses of upfront value, you're optimizing buildings so they can add more units, you're giving a new revenue stream and you're undercutting your design fees whilst in theory um, being very good at the design work that you're doing. And so that's an interesting proposition that is tends to turn heads in the conversations we've had so far. Of course, we've got to get better at that, but it's a pretty aggressive statement of the relevance of design fees or even, even of software fees actually, um, because my view is they just commodify very fast uh, and become unstable. Um, do you think that, uh, I mean, Andrew, maybe you can't talk about this, or maybe you can, I don't know, and, and Jonas, maybe you don't have a strong view, but I'm curious what you think the role of venture capital or, or any kind of highly, of a kind of high, of a kind of intense financial leverage, what role or relevance that has right now in this computational design stuff? In general, what do you think about the role of venture capital? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm probably the wrong person to be answering this question, certainly among my my high bar colleagues. Um, but I mean, you know, I think that, you know, as, as a company one, we we definitely are interested in not relying on too much venture capital. I think we want to we want to build, you know, a kind of slow, sustainable business model that, that doesn't depend on this kind of massive growth. And it's also a reflection of the recognition that the industry we're serving is slow. Like AC is very slow to evolve. And to think that because you release the Snapchat of architecture, you're going to have a billion customers overnight. It's just not going to happen. Is that what you're secretly telling us Hyper is aiming to be? The Snapchat of AUC? I'm going to put that in the headline. You're too, it's too late now. <laughs> no, that is, that is decisively not what we're doing. Um, but, and, and, it, and in fact, is sort of antithetical to what we want to do. Um, I think the point is that like, the kinds of massive growth and massive market share that VCs want are just not really that viable in an AC context. Now, with that said, I also think that the appetite of venture capital for addressing the sort of building market has has grown. I think there was a lot of trepidation around it for a while. And it was, you know, it, it was something that VCs didn't even want to really talk about. There were, you know, a few very specialized groups that were interested in, in building industry stuff. Um, but it seems like that's shifting quite quickly and people are very excited to sort of get on board with this general AC space. But, you know, it's, it, it remains to be seen how that will shake out. And I do think that there's, you know, there's a lot of risk associated with, with trying to map other kinds. I mean, we saw this with WeWork, like, you know, fundamentally, you know, a, a business that had 
a lot of, you know, a lot of technology and, and really, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just a slogan that, you know, we, we sort of operated a lot like a tech company, even though we were fundamentally a, a real estate company. Um, but, you know, that tension is, is not a small part of what led to the downfall. Like, I think this, this assumption that you can, you can grow and, and evolve at a tech pace when you're working with, you know, walls and doors and floors and windows is, is always, always a little bit challenging. Uh, Jonas, do you have any views on the role of venture capital in, in, um, in, in, in AEC? Or are you just too, too mature to deal with those things? <laughs> I mean, because no, I, I mean, think... the truth is that the truth is that venture capital is an incredibly, intellectually immature space as far as i can tell and it's like you know everyone's using baseball metaphors all the time for some reason i don't know mm, why mm. no i i agree very much with what you're saying andrew and still the next 10 years are going to be very interesting uh because we see these continuous attempts to space makers one of them to to do this to to be fast to move like a tech uh, company uh, etc and i think it's going to shift things um and it is actually getting some attention uh but to shift the whole a whole industry uh, over in that direction is uh is tricky one of the things i've been really interested in for a long time but never really managed to fully get into is that in Sweden uh, there, there is an area known for having very many uh, entrepreneurs uh, and small companies who typically you know start something up and then start to deliver to the bigger industries uh, producers uh, manufacturers fabricators uh, at the same time we have the huge construction firms and contractors which is a, the opposite of that uh so somehow I, I imagine a, a scenario where many smaller actors which could could be starting up and maybe be get funding like this and, uh, and an increased rate of innovation also in the material production for instance uh, is something that would be extremely interesting uh, and I think it it could address many quite critical issues also in terms of sustainability and the way the built environment is uh, produced and uh, rejuvenated, etc. But that that's that said, it's it's uh, in this case, you cannot only build it as a, a as a tech company. There are many different components, and then my example is more uh, the fact that we still uh, a lot of the built environment is actually constructed through materials in different ways. Uh, and there's no way that you're suddenly going to have uh, a production rate of 20,000 units all over the world because stuff has to be moved and we should do less of that. Mm. But there's, a, of course, a lot of intelligence that could go into that. And I think that's uh, those kind of networks and build that intelligence uh, would be extremely interesting. I do think capital at that scale and at that sort of disposability at that level of disposability um, will change things a lot. And I, and I, I mean, I, I hope that we will get some of it soon. What I have learned myself in terms of scalability and going to market with these kinds of things is that um, there's a sweet spot between um, 
But well, so what, what we've mainly learned is that the real estate profession on the on the property management and ownership side is staggeringly sub staggeringly behind in terms of technological evolution. They don't have databases, right? So we uh, have a partnership with a very, very large real estate association in Sweden, and they sent us a list of their members at one point. And it was a spreadsheet where I would say a solid third of the addresses were spelt wrong. <laughs> right. I mean, right. And, so, and so our job, is we, we know, they know what we're doing, which is to optimize service integration. And at the level of spelling addresses of their own members, the addresses were spelt wrong. And that's the level of it, right? Um, and and they, they are some of the most advanced people in the country. And Sweden is, in a, you know, is one of the highest levels of technology penetration in business in the world. And I think that um, that's a, a significant block. And then there's the competence behind it. If you, you know, we, this, is not, this is not a joke. I mean, we, we had a contract with Skanska to help them do service integration on a property in, in Malmö, in the south of Sweden. And at the third meeting, once we'd signed the contract, the guy said to me, when I was explaining to him, you know, how the model works and what systems we want to integrate with and so forth, one of the project leaders on their side said to me, um, okay, so an API, can that be written down on a piece of paper, <laughs> right? I mean, this is Skanska. This is one of the largest construction companies in the world. Um, and they, they, they were asking us to help them build the premium office block. And that was pretty horrifying. And so, you know, whether it's across construction or, you know, um, development or property management or facilities management, there's such deep lack of technical baselines and, and knowledge. I think that that's something where no amount of money can fill the gap. And actually, a lot of money right now is going into that hole, right? And so what we've learned is we have to find the sort of middle ground between attempting to expand into space, which I think is very dangerous. Um, and sort of just solve everything yourself so that you don't fall into, you know, these, these entropy pits, uh, or not doing anything at all and not being able to connect to anything, right? If you look at a company like Katerra, Katerra seems to be falling into, in a way, the same gap that Flux fell into. One of the ways of describing it is just filling space because there's space, mm. right? Um, and just solving more and more and more and more because there isn't a viable solution out there that you can scale with. I don't think uh, uh, venture capital is solving that, but I think that um, when enough niches have enough sort of, as it were, liquidity of competency, if you see what I mean, enough innovation, those things can link up and everything can kind of expand and accelerate a bit together. And I, I think I start to see that actually around um, Hypar because watching people's innovations, some of which has funded itself, converge into what you're doing starts to look like the way the world needs to be, the way the AEC world needs to be as venture capital starts to be more than just wasted mm. fantasy money, right? Is that these different niches accelerate together and each has got its own coherent track rather than one or a few actors trying to fill vast space with lots of money. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a really, it's a good point. And I, I, I actually have never sort of thought of it in that, in that light, but, you know, I, th I think, you know, maybe one of the things you're referring to is this sort of 
emergence of, of a lot of very similar models in that are sort of standalones around the sort of like building generation space. Obviously, yeah. like TestFit is best in class in this. They're exceptionally smart. They've really built this thing from the ground up. It's very smart. It knows all of the, you know, all of the restrictions. It can build many different, you know, kind of building typologies and, and it's very fast. Um, but we're also starting to see, you know, 10 and 20 and 40 copycat test fits of, you know, working in di maybe different typologies or different markets or whatever. We have a word for this or a, an acronym at Hyper. We call it uh, YABC, which is yet another building configurator. And I think the, <laughs> the, the reality is that like, I mean, there's, I think that the picture that you paint is an appealing one, which is that actually, you know, venture capital could be supporting the creation of all of these super niche, super optimized, you know, building design tools. But the problem is that like the infrastructure, the, the sort of base layer that you need to lay down to get something like that spun up is such a significant barrier that, that very yeah. people try it. And, you know, everybody who spins up one of these new things, they're going to go, they're going to go look at Rhino compute. They're going to go, you know, they're going to have to, you know, hire a bunch of web devs or, you know, learn a bunch of tools themselves that they're not familiar with. Um, and so at least, you know, one of the angles for Hypar is that we want to be that sort of infrastructure layer to make it very easy to just focus on your particular expertise and the particular problem that you're focusing on and not have to worry about how you're going to get it up on the web or how you're going to make it secure or how you're going to make it performant or how you're going to plug it into an optimization framework and all of these other things that everybody else is sort of spinning up uh, on their own. Um, and it would be great if we could be, you know, that sort of AWS low level service provider on which a thousand test fits bloom. Um, just to kind of, um, shift slightly so we'll see if we can get through a few more topics before we before we before we kind of cut it short uh, Jonas um on you know so you're you're a professor at Chalmers also in terms of education first then we'll kind of look at training inside a inside a practice what do you think is happening around these things in terms of education are you of the view that the best way for um training or studying architects is to just like flood them with technology skills from the out of the gates or leave it till later or both and or what do you think is the best way through here well first of all i think yeah, architectural training in schools that's its own animal in a way and there's cultures emerging and shifting and trends and all of these things and interests so uh, at my university um, in gothenburg chalmers has um uh, as, as an included engineering program that has raised the techno uh, technological understanding and the competences quite a bit. But at the same time, we also have tendencies to actually abolish it. I mean, you're probably familiar with the uh, post-digital narrative, um, which is still very much uh, relating to technology, but not not as a, a, a to make a point, uh, not to show off the technology, but actually go in quite the opposite direction. So that, that's one thing to be said, I think. Um, right now, I would say that the most advanced students, they actually find their own way. They, they find the communities, uh, they relate to those, uh, and they make use of, of their training in school to refine their skill sets and, and so on. But there's no way literally to 
to well one cannot assume that there's a whole bunch of young eager architectural students who would jump at an opportunity uh, to to learn having said that it's still sort of a uh, we are, I teach in the master's program, so I have students who've done three or maybe even four years, and they, they typically sometimes come to us when they realize that either I need, I probably need to know this um, in order to progress, or they already have been on their own building up this uh, understanding mm -hmm. and they want to apply it yeah. in the most advanced studio at the university, basically. Um, so it's, I've been teaching for quite a long time, and this, the interest of students uh, is continuously shifting. Over the years, I've had students who are very technically savvy, but they, they literally say, well, if, if, I, if I learn more, I will end up in the specialist modeling group at Foster's, and I do not want that. I want to be a general <laughs> architect, yeah. you know, things like that. Um, so there, uh, you, there's there's a complexity there. Do you uh, on it, so just to extend that in terms of um, inside white, what is the status with training? Do people want to be trained in in computational architecture tools? Do they not want to be trained. Do they want other people to do it for them. I mean, how, what's the what is the push and pull around the skills evolution inside the company? The hard thing in in a company is that the the time needed to go from knowing nothing to become an expert yeah. or even adverse uh, at something, uh, you don't have that time. So it, it yeah. really depends. Very, very few colleagues have within the practice uh, taken those steps. Most most of them have acquired it elsewhere. Uh, but then again, we, we have a lot of um, junior staff who who come in with, with skills. And unfortunately, in some cases, they lose it over a few years. And that's we we try to capture that and to find a way to uh, for them to grow. Uh, but they, of course, also they do not all many of them do not want to end up in a specialist uh, spot. They want to learn the whole, which I understand. They they want to learn how the whole thing works, uh, basically. But it's it's uh, the interest is growing. Uh, but then again, to go back a little bit to. To, under your earlier work, uh, things like human UI um, makes things accessible to them. And I know that that was one of your drivers initially, uh, so we still use it. Uh, and it's happening. Um, but so just to, just to finish on that point, I mean, on your side, Jonas, just to be super clear, are you saying that the, the leadership in the practice isn't insisting that the entire practice upgraded skills in this area, or just it's kind of an organic evolution? Uh, I think they should be saying that. They start to say that. Uh, but then... I realize I just put you in a politically situation. I would say what, what's a firm realization is that we need to upgrade the practice. That's not necessarily the same thing as saying that everyone working here should acquire new skills. Uh, we have to remodel the way we work, and people come and go. So okay, I'll let you off the hook. I don't say anymore. I get the, I think we get the point. <laughs> Where's nicely in, finessed? Just, just to jump in quickly on this topic because I think I think it's really interesting. You know, I I I've often pushed like I think I think people get freaked out by the notion of like 
learning to code or learning what they perceive to be a, a pretty extreme technical skill set that requires a huge amount of effort and energy to learn, which is, you know, to an extent true. Um, the thing that I think firms can really benefit from is promoting a, a sort of abstract computational mindset, a way of thinking mm. about problems and identifying opportunities that are right for these kinds of techniques. Not everybody needs to know how to write a script, but everybody should be able to look at a problem and say, oh, there could be a script for that. Um, and I think that like, you know, in, in my time in firms, I was always trying to promote that sort of a thinking. And I also think that that's something that we can stand to be doing more of in, in schooling is teaching people because, you know, architects, architects are, as we talked about earlier, very good at sort of synthesizing many other disciplines. But I think the, the sort of language of, of well-defined sort of rigorous abstractions over whatever it is that we're talking about, whatever we're modeling, you know, whatever, whatever thing we're trying to optimize for or whatever is something that I think a lot of, a lot of architects really struggle with. And we could, we could do the industry a service by teaching people to think about things in a sort of data oriented or computational way, even if they never write a line of code in their lives. Mm, I think that's yeah, right. Maybe that's could right. I just add to that? Yeah. I, I think because what has been happening is, it's from the let's say the original BIM perspective, uh, where a lot of a lot of uh, colleagues, of course, have been forced to to work with BIM software, which is all at least initially very much directed towards what is that final delivery, mm -hmm. and then backtracking back and and even a few years ago, suggesting that this should we 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 can sketch here, we can use this in the very early stage, uh, which was problematic. So. That was, of course, a strategic decision, which really was just pushed out. Uh, but it had many repercussions. Uh, so I think to to add the perspectives that you, you referred to, Andrew, also in early stages where you can provide values and you can do a lot of difference. Um, and it that that's where we mainly operate, basically, um, to push ideas in that sense. And it's and it it's it's taking hold. So it's working, I think. I think so. So your point is 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 well taken, Andrea. About um, not not necessarily formally com formal computation thinking, although I think that's good. But sort of the 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 logical precursor to actual computation and reinforcing that inside architecture to give people a kind of bridge so they can say, well, that looks like something that could be computed and and detect those things early on. I mean, that leads to another issue. I mean, it's a sort of deeper issue though, which I've. I've pointed out before, and I, and, I, and I use it to describe one of the problems. I use it to describe the, the essence of the problem in the bigger picture with flux and with things like flux, including um, why a, was it why a CB? Was that, was it yet another computational, was it? Uh, yeah, um, but um, that's that architecture has failed in my sort of hyperbolic um, summary to generate viable theory in thousands of years what i mean by viable theory are things that you can test right and 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 that means something in scientific language but actually the thing is is that when computation is applied to a discipline what it applies itself to is the theory that can be tested and that is a lethal problem right now is that architecture hasn't served up enough theory to make massive acceleration of computational optimization an easy or obvious or, or viable thing in many cases. And I do think it's where things like flux 
failed because the premise was in the, in the minds of computational people in Google X where it came out of is, well, look, you know, it looks like a technical problem. We can throw a competition at any technical problem. What's not to like here, right? We can do this. It turns out that it isn't, you know, most of architecture is not framed as a scientifically technical problem. How, what is a good typology? What is an efficient floor plate? What is a good block structure? What is a good urban structure? All super contested, very poorly defined um, issues. And, um, and that's, I think, in a way, ironically, one of the things that would happen when bringing computation into architecture and urban design is that people would have to think, in many cases, for actually the first time ever, in terms of what is the science here we could compute? Right. Um, obviously, there are kind of very practical things you can you can compute and put scripts on. But in the bigger picture, it's I think one of the problems that hasn't been very well confronted. What is the actual science here that we could apply um, computation to? Do you think that um, that hybrid education will evolve because of computation? Either of you, do you think that you know there'll be these new, sort of new disciplines, which is you know spatial design, where for three years you're learning you know different tool sets and there's some you know architecture some urban design some you know product design some you know theory of space or whatever whatever sort mixed with computation and then you can specialize in architecture later on is that a realistic thing or is that not a thing i mean i i've always i've always believed that hybrids are are sort of inevitable I don't, I don't know what shape that takes, certainly in, in academia. And I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of inertia in general that just makes sort of the evolution towards those hybrids in a meaningful way quite difficult. Um, but I do believe in the potency of those hybrids because when they emerge organically, they're really incredible. I mean, I think, you know, when I worked at WeWork, there was a team whose, you know, whose sole job was to sort of think systemically about our our processes and they were not designing projects they were thinking about designing the design process they were thinking about how this is going to work what how it's going to tie into supply chain how it's going to tie into approvals and you know how can we how can we streamline this process itself how can we describe rules and logics that set out how a we work should be drawn um and, you know, and, and I didn't, we didn't have a name. I mean, there wasn't even like a good name for that discipline, but working with that team improved my ability to build computational solutions for those processes tenfold, because there were experts in the work who could say, this is how you think about it systemically. And they were fundamentally hybrids. They were thinking about, you know, architecture, but they were also very much like systems and process oriented thinkers. Um, and I do think that like, you know, it does, these hybrids emerge organically. Architecture is actually sort of fundamentally a, a hybrid discipline. It always pulls in influences yeah. from, from science and, and often to, to horrible effect from philosophy, uh, from other, uh, all kinds of other disciplines. It has this sort of inbuilt dilettantism where architects just want to be an expert in a little bit of everything. Um, but I think that, I think that, uh, educational programs that can seize on that and that can maybe focus that energy in a little bit more of a useful direction will will ultimately prevail. At least that's my hope. Yeah, I think that's. Um, I mean, an example. 
an example I think and what what is happening is of course the the kind of uh schools that combine engineering and architecture uh where maybe the engineering side is more prone to take on computation as as a field of working uh which typically then at, at Chalmers for instance ends, ends up with people with double degrees structural engineers and architects but they still are trapped in that uh, situation i mean i think that it, it is interesting because they learn to think in a different way and the question is then can they apply that that on completely different sets and scenarios and that's happening uh but more in, in an emerging way or uh because of personal interests and so on hmm. but you can't just um, put in uh you know take someone and just teach them a bunch of different things doesn't necessarily need to that hybrid uh, understanding. So I think it's, it takes a whole lot of other measures as well. I think one of the, one of the challenges there is that there is so much to, to, to engage with um, that yeah. in principle could be relevant. Uh, I, I can see these things happening, but I, 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 I fear for the, for the, the architectural course instructor who um, who wants to bring um, who wants to generate a hybrid course you know what what where they start where 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 you where they end what what you hope to transmit in terms of a solid skill base I mean what I what I can say from my perspective of teaching uh, for a period is for a few years I was teaching extensively at the architecture school in Stockholm, also a little bit at the planning school, is that um, uh, there was a lot of in, a lot of hunger for guidance in how the technical tools could be applied to real practice. And ironically, the teachers didn't have a fucking clue, <laughs> right? The, the, the people that, um, that were good at the tools were good at the tools and the senior architects uh, who were teaching in the schools had a lot of experience in real, you know, live um, architecture work, large projects, but they weren't very well combined. If there was a combination, it was what I find most unattractive and least extensible about this kind of work, which is um, so-called parametricism, i.e. using computational design for purely um, uh, um, aesthetic, in inverted commas, purposes, right? And that's, I think, the least useful track to pursue in in embedding these skills in the in the um, in the well professional practice or whatever. The other thing I noticed, but, that, but as you say, Eunice, is kind of particular to specific schools. Is that at the Stockholm Architecture School at the Royal Institute of Technology, the amount of technical competency or the expectation that people would have a technical grounding was pathetically low. Right, I was teaching master's level students. These are people in their fourth and fifth year of study. And I was asking them what U values were and I had to explain, I mean, and even if that sounds complicated, I was going to have to explain to them how you measure energy, what a killer, you know, what a, what a kilowatt is versus a kilowatt hour. And that terrified me because uh, these were people who all wanted to work in sustainability and, you know, I, that was very odd. And I, and I think when it comes back to your earlier point about, you know, logic, I think that there probably needs to be some consolidation, at least in some sort of, you know, uh, cultural uh, corners of the of the educational of architectural education to just ensure that you know technical things, whether it's computation or logic or 
just basic energy <laughs> physics yeah. is not entirely lacking among people that claim to be educated, that they think they're being educated in this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I um, think, sorry. No, you were saying, yeah. No, I, mean, I think, at least in, in Swedish schools over the last decades or so, there's been this sort of shifting between something which is teaching knowledge uh, and doing projects. And this, this has been a, like a pendulum going back and forth. And you have this idea that, well, you should learn by doing and we'll feed you with all these different things in your projects, uh, which, which means that, for instance, regular courses um, um, or, or theory is, is completely lacking in, in many different areas, especially in, in technology, I would say. Uh, so I've, I've grown to see that that's, that's actually int- uh, very much needed, of course, and how you apply it uh, is included. I actually do, I do think, do think that's one area where um, the, the venture capital money and the venture capital energy or the entrepreneurial venture-seeking venture energy will help, which is that um, it, it oughtn't to be that hard for people to get extension education in, in technology, right? There's so many ways to learn these things now, which was never the case before. And a lot of that is driven by startups and the kind of whole startup boot, bootstrap your skill set energy. And I really appreciate that. I hope that that kind of bleeds into the design profession a bit more. Certainly it's how I got to, to study uh, computation properly because I was always interested in it abstractly, but realized at some point within the last few years, I'd actually have to be a coder to some level of competency. Otherwise I wouldn't really be able to lead or create products that have the you know level of sophistication I want and think are necessary. But it, it, it was surprisingly easy to get into doing it thanks to the quality of the tools available, almost all of which is saturated with venture capital money and venture capital energy it's not normal educational stuff one one last sort of thought or reflection or or, or sort of theme um i mean it's maybe a sort of maybe sort of a bit crude to present it in these terms but do we think that computational design will have any particular relevance to i mean specifically of interest to me environmental issues but more broadly any social progress issue whether it's affordable housing inclusion cultural tolerance racial and racial integration whatever whatever we think of the the prior pri- the pri- priorities for a specific society does computational design have a role in that any more than anything else in design and technology or not <laughs> saving saving that one for last huh uh, <laughs> yeah i mean i i I tend to be a little... I'm, I'm, re- I'm ready to cut the mic at any point, Andrew, okay. if, if yeah. the answer is not acceptable. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think I'm a little bit of a pessimist on this front. Uh, I tend to be suspicious of architects who aim to save the world, and I also tend to be suspicious of technologists who say they're going to change the world or save the world. Um so I guess my, if I keep my pessimistic hat on, I think that it's just the intersection of, you know, it, it's so bound up in, in, in things that have already time and time again sort of proven their impotence. Um, now, let's, let's take off the pessimistic hat. If I had to give an optimistic answer, um, I think, you know, again, I, I, 
are, you know, cultural problems, societal problems, sustainability, these are all so wickedly complex and entangled and involve forces that are, you know, just so difficult to grasp. Um, but I do think that, you know, I, I take a lot of hope from endeavors like, I mean, you had him on your last episode, Fed's Kanoa, um, mm. I think is really promising as a new way of thinking about the built environment that is a new business model fundamentally predicated on the ability to do this stuff really quickly thanks to technology. Um, and, you know, I think that in order to meet the world's housing needs and, you know, supply all of the space that's required, like it's inevitable that automation and computation are going to be a part of that. Now, I don't, I wouldn't want to extend that to a claim that there's anything sort of fundamentally good, uh, you know, from a, from a sort of cultural or societal standpoint about computation, but I do think it's a powerful tool in one's arsenal if, if you're already motivated and empowered to, to make some change. Jonas, is that happening for you? Is it happening already or is it, what do you think? I mean, I think we're, we're uh, struggling a little bit in that area. I mean, for instance, within our firm, we have anthropologists um, who's working <laughs> a lot with, I mean, they are, they're an important part of projects um, in terms of understanding communities where we engage. But this, that, and we've been together in projects, but to, to get actual links between what we can provide and what they provide is very hard. Mm. Um, so I think um, there are certainly interesting opportunities um, in, in related areas, um, maybe more in, in general sustainability or, or the reuse of materials, which could also be related to sort of a cultural aspect and so on where things are happening. But the other thing I'm thinking is, of course, the the agency that this can provide to individuals to find to to, to open up the uh, field of practice to people mm. who would maybe not be engaged in the development of society through architecture otherwise, mm. uh, and the communities around computation that's been happening for the past fifteen years in different incarnations and different platforms and, and so on, I think actually op opened up uh, a little bit. Um, you can call that sort of a, a, a nerdy community or whatever, but that's actually a, a part of uh, maybe sort of an approach that did not really exist so much in architecture before. So, yeah. And it's also global, uh, which is uh, very strong, um, especially now, for instance, when you see from different areas of the world, uh, a lot of teaching going on. I get um, uh, a lot of applications and so on from places like Iran um, and may maybe uh, countries that have a lot of difficulties and they, they, they've been able to use this to actually provide themselves with certain agency. Uh, that's not really responding directly to your question, but I think there's something in there that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so I think that, that in terms of sustainability, the the ability in the built professions to to measure and model raw efficiency, you know, starting with energy, 
in various ways, daylighting, air flows, um, sort of models of energy consumption, um, insulation, and then taking it a level deeper, you know, sort of performance of materials, supply chains, and so forth. All of that is getting good and better, and it's becoming a kind of kind of basic free feature of design tools and so that is in theory very promising but the problem is already with that is that that isn't ultimately actually where sustainability becomes a problem if you're building a giant building in the wrong location and destroying nature and requiring huge amounts of infrastructure to get people to a luxury hotel you can make that building super efficient with energy but you the energy balance will be wrong anyway right and so that was always the problem with sustainable design which is that the, you know, the systemic aspect is is missing some of that can be clarified but i think the two things that 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 the competition tools will enable is broadly a culture of um uh, of uh of of transparency um where people just expect that you have good answers right for why you've made a choice which isn't the case in design right now and i think that that's a kind of second order effect of computational tools developers and society will say show me you're working why have you made that choice and if you haven't got a computational answer you better come up with something else i mean that level of transparency or, or the rise of transparency will help also i think that exactly as you say you know it's the democratization of access to tools and therefore potentially projects. I actually think that is going to be one area of disruption where people who do not have certification and don't want it because they feel they're excluded start pitching into projects saying, let me bid a design to you. Um, and that will be its own pressure. Well, this has been a ton of fun um, and I really appreciate you joining in. Um, I think we've covered all the themes that we wanted to look at in a very sort of shallow way. Hopefully, some people will get something out of this, particularly those who aren't already in the fight, as it were, um, and who find it a little bit uninteresting to, to to join in. I can say that we only used the word parametrics once, and it was my fault that we did so, which is massive achievement on our behalf. So, Andrew, that was great to speak to you. Jonas, it was great to speak to you, and and you know, let's let's do this again. I'll put this online very shortly, and we can we can um, we can bounce it around our networks from there. Okay, thanks guys. Thanks so much thanks. For, for having me. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Yeah, yeah great, great time. Thanks. thanks. thanks.